Good morning. If you would open, please, to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23 today. We'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. When we hear that someone has become a Christian, whether it's someone we know well or perhaps not that well, it brings joy, doesn't it? And it also prompts us to pray for that person, to pray that their newfound faith will take root, that they'll continue on, that they'll become rooted and grounded in that faith, strengthened in it, that they'll bear fruit. In other words, that they'll grow. And it was the same thing for the Apostle Paul because at the beginning of this letter, Paul says to the Colossians, ever since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for the saints and the hope that you now have, from that time that we heard of it, we have been praying for you. That's verse 9. And what have we been praying? Well, I think the essence of it is found in verse 10. We've been praying that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's what it kind of all boils down to. That was Paul's desire for the Colossians then, and it's the same desire that God has for us now. Some walk, unfortunately, in disorderly ways, but God wants us to walk in a manner that's worthy of him because that is what will honor him and that's what will benefit us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's the desire that your pastors have for you, that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that you serve him faithfully all the days of your life. In other words, that you would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God has been very, very good to us. Our Heavenly Father has delivered us out of the dominion of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son. That's verse 14, what is just before our text today. He saved us. He's forgiven us. He's redeemed us. But my friends, we're not out of the woods yet. There's still opposition to us, and it's formidable. We have enemies. There are spiritual enemies that would like to steal, rob, kill, destroy. We usually sum it up by talking about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sin's dominion over us has indeed been broken, but the sinful nature still abides within us. In other words, we're still temptable, aren't we? Yes. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Besides the flesh or indwelling sin, there's also a demonic realm. It's headed up by Satan. He is there to lie, to steal, to 
kill, to destroy. Luther knew this well. He talked about the prince of darkness, grim. But he also said, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's the word of the gospel. And he said, that word, that gospel is far above all worldly powers. Nevertheless, there is a prince of darkness grim. And in addition to the flesh and the devil, there's also a world that wants to squeeze us into its mold to make us deny our Lord. This present world order, or we could talk about it in terms of the spirit of the age, is in the air that we breathe. And it can influence us often without us even knowing it and hinder us from following God. So we face real opposition. We are not out of the woods. The Colossians faced opposition too, and that's why Paul wrote the letter. Uh, the New Testament letters are what we call occasional letters. That doesn't mean that uh, Paul occasionally wrote a letter. It means that the letters were occasioned by something. There's a reason why he wrote and lurking in the background of the epistle to the Colossians was false teaching, false ideas. They'll become clearer as we get on in the letter, especially in chapter 2. But Paul was writing to counter these things because Satan's power is real and the world is subtly dangerous and the temptations of the flesh are deceptive. They are real enemies. So how can we prevail? How can we be faithful to the end? How can we, in the face of such opposition, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. He's always the answer, right? <laughs> but we need to drill down a little deeper into what that means by drilling a little deeper into who he is. If we're going to walk in a manner worthy of him, there are some things we need to know about him. And that is exactly what Paul brings us to in this portion of Scripture that we're about to read. It's going to help us to know him, to follow him, to grow in him, to prevail in him in the face of these enemies. And, and basically what we need to know about Jesus is this. He is central, he is supreme, and he is sufficient. He is, why don't you say it with me? That's good to do. He is central, and he is supreme, and he is sufficient. And if you have Jesus, you have all you need. And we're going to take the passage in two parts. Uh, the second part will be much shorter, just to let you know. All right, well, right after the introductory comments and the prayer, Paul Lynch launches into an amazing, an amazing description of Jesus Christ. Let's read these verses from chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul says about the Son, the beloved Son, he's the subject of this, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him 
all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. You have the phrase, He is, He is, He is, He is, throughout this passage. And all things, all things, all things, all things. Six times, all things. I think one time it says everything, but that means all things, right? So you get the picture. Something about Him incorporates all things. It's an astounding statement. This is Jesus Christ, our superhero. Kids, you like superheroes? Here's the real superhero. All the ones in the movies and on TV, they're all fake. They're all a bunch of baloney. They're actually ridiculous. I say, wow, you just sound like a grumpy old man now. Yeah, I know. That's okay. I mean, you can enjoy it. It's all right. But just remember, they're all fake. This is not fake. This is real. Jesus is the real superhero. And Paul makes 10 assertions about Christ here. And all these assertions support this claim that Jesus Christ is central, supreme, and sufficient. Let's look at the first one. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. The literally icon of the invisible God. God is invisible. You cannot see him. He's immortal and invisible. But Christ is the image of God. Christ makes God visible. And we see this in the incarnation. When Paul says that Christ is the image of God, he means that Christ makes God manifest, apparent to our senses. Jesus Christ is therefore divine. He is God, God the Son, God in human form. He is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And incarnation is the word that we use to express this. God became a man, the eternal Son of God, remaining what he was, became what he was not. He assumed human flesh. The eternal Son of God became flesh at a time and in a place. God the Son entered our time and space, but he had eternally pre-existed our time and space. Paul's going to go on to say that he is before all things. John put it this way in his famous words, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. It's a reference to Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, Gospel of John, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We could see it. 
Adam was created in the image of God, but Christ is the image of God. He is therefore divine. He is the image of the invisible God. That's assertion number one. Number two, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. That's the next thing Paul says. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you lift that phrase, the firstborn of all creation, if you lift it out of its context and take it all by itself, it can sound like Christ was the first one to be created. And if the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, that's exactly what they will tell you. But of course, they're wrong. Christ is not a created being. When it says firstborn of creation, it can't mean that he's the first one to be created because in the very next verse, verse 16, Paul says, by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. Well, okay, if it doesn't mean that he was the first to be created, what does firstborn of creation mean then? It means that Christ is the heir of salvation. Like the ancient laws of primogeniture, it said the firstborn son receives the inheritance of the father. That's what Paul's getting at here. The firstborn son was the heir. The firstborn inherits the father's estate. So what we have here is a statement about Christ, the father's beloved son, and that son's status as the heir of all things. The entire inheritance of the universe belongs to him. So what this means is he has status as the firstborn. He has primacy. He has rank. He is supreme, as Paul will say in a moment. He is preeminent, the first. Everything belongs to him. And why is that? Because he created all things. And that's the next assertion. Christ is the creator of all things. Verse 16, and in its entirety, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So this all things is meant to encompass everything. As I said, it's repeated six times. And by the way, all things includes you and me. You were created by Christ. Let that sink in. You and I, the reason why we exist is because of Christ. Now, we usually think of creation as an act of God the Father, don't we? I mean, the creed says, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and, and that's, of course, true. But remember, our one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all three persons are involved in the great works of creation and redemption. So what we say, to be precise, is the Father created through the Son and by the Spirit. Christ is therefore the agent of creation. 
So with this understanding, it is correct to say that he created all things. As John said, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And then Paul goes on to elaborate what the all things means and he says, in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible. You see, there are things that are invisible that are created through Christ and that exist, but we can't see them so we don't know that much about them. And then Paul goes on to list a few here, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, principalities, powers, all these things. Well, what, what are these? What are these? Well, these are apparently the higher orders of the angelic realm, some of whom rebelled and are now evil spiritual beings. And these spiritual forces were also created by him. Now, this raises a lot of questions. Not much is known about them. But from time to time, you may run into people who claim to know a whole lot about them. I'm not so sure. Um, and some people think, well, I, I need an advanced course in demonology to be able to do spiritual warfare, don't I? And uh, I would say, no, no, you don't. What you need to know is that Christ created them and they are subject to him and that Everything in the universe, even the evil things, they are still subject to God. He's in charge of everything. And again, this raises all kinds of questions we can't get into here. But the point that Paul is making is that Christ is above them all as central, supreme, and sufficient. This invisible spiritual realm understandably fascinates people and we'll have a little more to say about that in a moment but besides being the image of God the firstborn of God and creator number four Christ is before all things this is another corollary to his divinity before there was time there was Christ he is eternally pre-existent he always was he always is he always will be this is what is true of God. He is eternal. Number five, in Christ all things hold together. This tells us that all things were created through Christ and all things are sustained by Christ. He is the sustainer of what he creates. And we talk about this in the great doctrine of providence. God keeps in being what he has created and Paul tells us that Christ is actually the one that sustains what he creates. And the reason that creation continues to exist is Christ. Yeah, there are laws of physics and thermodynamics and all that stuff that on a scientific level, a merely scientific level, give reasons. But above and beyond it all, the glue that holds everything together is our superhero, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is good to know because sometimes it can seem like our world is falling apart. Sometimes it can seem like our lives are falling apart. But take heart, they won't because Christ is holding it together even when it seems like they may be falling apart. He's the sustainer of all things. Number six, he's also the head of the body, the church. Hmm. The church is in one sense a subset of creation 
But the church is the very purpose of God. God is king of the kingdom and Christ is king of that kingdom. And the church, the church manifests the kingdom of God on earth. The church is closely identified with the kingdom of God. They're not exactly identified, but they're very closely identified. And the church testifies or manifests the kingdom of God and Christ is the head of the church. So you have these two large categories, creation and redemption. Christ is the head of creation. He is also the head of redemption. And that's going to be talked about here in terms of reconciliation. We'll get to that in a moment. He's the head of the body, the head of the church. He's Lord, not only of creation, he's Lord also of redemption. And I'd just like to point out here, my friends, that the church is a very big deal. The church is a very big deal in the redemptive purposes of God and all other things serve that end. So if you think the politics of the world is the biggest deal, no, it's not. No. The universal church, that is the people of God redeemed in all ages and from all corners of the world, that is the big deal for God. And Christ is the head of the body, the head of the church. The seventh assertion, Paul goes on to say that Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now here you have that term firstborn again, but here it's a reference to the resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. Christ was the very first one to rise from the dead with resurrection life. You say, wait, wait, what, didn't Lazarus rise from the dead? Yeah, but he, he, he subsequently died. This is the resurrection that refers to everlasting life. And Christ, in rising from the dead, defeated death. And it is the reverse of the curse that was enacted upon the world after Adam fell that Christ has now begun. And his resurrection is the first fruits, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And that means that the resurrection of Christ, him being the firstborn from the dead, means that others will follow. And this is where we come in. Because he rose from the dead, because Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. This is another big deal. He's the beginning of a new creation. A new age has dawned with Jesus Christ and we are a part of it because if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead and that's good news for us, especially some of us that are getting older and we're staring death in the face and we don't have to be afraid because Christ has provided eternal life for us and the resurrection is a promise that we have. Number eight, Christ is preeminent in all things, says Paul. This is a summary statement. To be eminent is important. To be eminent is to be important. To be preeminent is to be all 
important. It's to be most important. Among the eminent, no one comes near our Lord Jesus Christ. No one comes even close. And this is another way of saying that, that Christ is supreme, first place. Did you know, ultimately, every knee will bow to him in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess, not just those who love him, but even those who hate him. They will all bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, there's a funny the way words change over time. In the last 10 years, there's been a change. And if you know anything about the sports world, you know what the acronym GOAT means. G-O-A-T. Know what it means? Greatest of all times. Jordan, Brady, put the name in, greatest of all time. Okay. Did you know, a few years ago, GOAT meant you were the jerk that lost the game for us. Did you know that? You might forget that, but that's how words have changed. Well, Jesus is now the greatest of all times because he always was. Anyway, that's just a little thing I thought about for what it's worth. He's the greatest of all times. Okay. All right, ninth assertion, in Christ dwells the fullness of God. Now, the word that Paul uses here for fullness is significant because remember I said lurking in the background, there's false teaching. Uh, just for your information, if you're interested, uh, most scholars identify one of the problems in Colossae here was an incipient Gnosticism. You've probably heard that word before, Gnosticism. It's kind of a, an ancient New Agey type of thing. Now, this is going to get traction, and over the next 150 years, it is really going to be a hassle for the church because there are going to be forms of Gnosticism that are going to infiltrate the church, and it's going to become adulterated. Uh, and that's actually happening in our, our, our world today with New Agey type stuff. But in the ancient world, this Gnosticism was kind of hard to nail down, but it was a, a kind of a spiritual cosmic consciousness that only a few spiritual elite could attain to, but everyone could strive for. And it was the idea that God is so great and so amazing, he is however, very far off from him, and we can't know him, and he was referred to as the unknown God. But this unknown God would provide emissaries or emanations that would come down to us, and this whole thing about the unknown God, it was thought that that's the pleroma, that's the fullness, and somehow maybe some of it can filter down to us and probably make use of these things called thrones and dominions and principalities and powers and different emanations or eons that would come down to us. But Paul's saying that's false teaching. Christ is the true fullness of God. In him dwells the fullness of the deity in bodily form. And the bodily part was important because the Gnostics claimed like a lot of ancient spirituality that the body, the flesh was, was just a bad thing. 
but, but actually the body is a good thing. God created the body. And the best thing we know about the body is that God himself, God the Son, assumed a human body. So your body is a good thing. Okay. All right. Anyway, that's just a little bit that's going on in the background. So when we read things like this, like Christ is the fullness of God, and we think, oh, what's that? Well, that's probably a reference to telling them you don't need this Gnosticism if you have Christ. And number 10, Christ is the reconciler of all things. Now, we don't need a reconciler if there's not a relational breach. But when there is a relational break, reconciliation becomes necessary. When Paul says that Christ is the one through whom all things are reconciled, it implies that there's a problem that needs to be overcome, and of course that's true. Christ is the one who overcomes our sin and brings reconciliation between us and God. It's the big problem that Christ has come to solve. And it's going to require his blood. Adam's fall plunged the world into sin and misery. But Christ came to reconcile. And not just us, but all things. Well, okay. Now that is a whole lot to say about Christ. That is the what. And the what about Christ is really important because this is who he is. And if we're going to love him and serve him and worship him, we have to love him and serve him and worship him as he is, not as, well, this is what I think about when I think of Christ. Uh, you, you may have some proper thoughts, but my guess is a lot of people, when they say, when I think of Christ, I think of, and, and they go off and tell you things that basically are like themselves. But that's not what we can do. It's not what we should do. We have to believe in the Christ that is presented to us in Scripture because this is divine revelation without error. So this is what we have to believe about him. So it's important because this is who God is in and of himself. It's how he's presented. And I have to say, in addition to that, that not everybody is happy with this kind of language or believes this about Christ, even professing Christians. There are those who say, and, and Kevin actually referenced this in his introductory message, there are those who say, uh, you know, this is a lot of Paul's grandiose talk. This is about how the church then kind of hijacked Christ and then said all these grandiose things about him, but I prefer the Jesus of history, not the Christ of the future church that came out of it. Jesus never said this kind of stuff about himself. He was just a very humble but profound teacher. But is that really true? Didn't Jesus say, I am the bread of life? Didn't he say, I am the living water? You eat me, you drink me, you have everlasting life. Didn't he say, I am the resurrection and the life? He didn't just say, I raise the dead. He said, I am the resurrection. 
And most scandalous of all, didn't he say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me? Didn't he say, before Abraham was, I am? And did he not by his miracles demonstrate that he was Lord over sin, Lord over sickness, Lord over demons, Lord over death, Lord over the elements? And didn't he, equating himself with God the Father, get himself crucified? Yeah, Jesus had the same opinion of himself that Paul had. But of course, Jesus, in presenting himself to the world as a Jew, had to go about it in a way that was wise. But this is all true. There's no difference between Jesus' understanding of himself and Paul's understanding of him. And so when we consider that in the background of this letter, the Colossians were being influenced by false teaching, there was a spirit of the age that was at work then, and there is a spirit of the age that's at work now. There's a worldview that when we look at this letter in future weeks, we're going to see what was afflicting them were all kinds of things with this new agey stuff, but also law-keeping, observing special days, dietary restrictions, the incipient Gnosticism, and wrong views about the spirit world. Um, so what about our age? I'd like to just put forth a couple of things that occur to me that maybe pick up on this a bit. Um, the spirit of our age is a spirit of inclusion. Uh, you hear about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And inclusiveness is, is really a big deal. Uh, the last thing we want to be is exclusive. And so for us to say Jesus is wonderful, that's fine. You can say that all you want. But to say that he is central, supreme, sufficient, uh, now that's beginning to sound a little bit exclusive. And some people get nervous when you talk about that. People from other religions and other faiths might get the idea that you're excluding them when you talk about God in this way. That's a no-no. Now, Jesus is certainly cool, no doubt about it, but there's a lot of other cool stuff out there, and we don't want to be exclusive. We don't want other religions with sincere followers to think that we mean that Jesus is the only way. In addition to this, there's also a profound interest in spiritual things, those things that exist but you can't see, and Again, it's human nature to want to know the future. There's a vast area of spirituality out there that is dangerous. A Pew Research study recently noted that there's been a marked increase of people in our nation who believe in such phenomena as astrology, reincarnation, psychic knowledge, spiritual energy located in physical things like crystals, fortune-telling, tarot card readings, seances, etc. Like 60% of the people in our land are into one or more such things. But the striking thing noticed by the Pew Research was that an almost identical percentage of people who identify as Christians are into such things. Really? Yeah. 
This is called spiritual syncretism. It's trying to mix things that don't mix, like oil and water. Such things, to try to combine them with devotion to Christ, is actually called idolatry. And the idea that there are many ways to God or to ultimate reality or to whatever you want to call it and to say that Christianity is just one way among many, well, it does sound narrow-minded, I admit. And how do we answer that? Well, apparently Jesus was narrow-minded because he's the one that said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And Paul's saying here that Christ is unique. He's the image of God. He's the firstborn. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's preeminent. He's central. He's supreme. He's sufficient. But I think the point to be made is that if there are indeed other ways to God and that Christ is but one among many, then that requires us to say that it really wasn't necessary for him to die on the cross. If there are many ways, why did he have to die on the cross? He didn't. But do you really want to say that? Father, you really didn't have to give your son. Jesus, you didn't really have to be crucified. It wasn't necessary. Friends, if you stop and think about it, that is a huge insult to God and something we should abhor. Inclusivity may characterize our age, but as Christians, we must stand with Jesus who, by the way, extends his hands out to all people without distinction and whose church will ultimately consist of people from every kindred, tribe, and tongue, and it will be a multitude that no man can number. But as Peter said, when threatened about preaching the exclusivity of Christ, came right back and said, there is salvation in no other, for there is no other name in, under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If this is a scandal, if this is an offense, then let us bear it. I'm willing to offend if it's the offense of the cross. All other offensiveness by Christians shouldn't be tolerated, including self righteousness because the only reason you and I stand is because of the grace of God not anything in ourselves now in closing briefly let's look at the remaining verses starting at verse 20 again and through him through Christ to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed 
you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here we are told that Christ is the one who reconciles all things to himself and that he does it by the blood of his cross. He does it through his body of flesh and by his death. So that not only creation but redemption is centered in Jesus Christ. This is presented now in terms of reconciliation. Broken relationships can only be repaired by reconciliation and the most profound relational break came about because of our sin. Our sins are what separate us from God, but Jesus Christ's death on the cross changed all that and provided a bridge for us to return. Though we were alienated from God, though we were practicing evil deeds, though we were hostile in our minds, God took the initiative by sending his son and Jesus went willingly to the cross to propitiate the wrath of God and bring us into relationship with him so that we have now reconciliation with God. So we have peace with God and it's all through our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul goes on. He says, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, some read these words and think, ah, okay, there's the catch. <laughs> I know it sounded too good to be true. Well, these if clauses, and there are a number of them in Paul's letters, if you continue in the faith, simply means that human responsibility is the part of God's plan, that his sovereignty encompasses our responsibility, and that yes, we do need to persevere in the faith, but we will because God is preserving us. The faith, by the way, that you must continue in is itself a gift from God. It's not a catch. But it is a warning. There is human responsibility involved in our salvation, but it's a response to his ability, and it works hand in hand with God's sovereignty. If you just look back a page in your Bible to the last chapter, well, to the actually a couple pages to Philippians chapter 2, Paul told that church, he said, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. That's something you must do. But you can do it because it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if you continue in the faith, yeah, salvation is something that's ultimately dependent upon God. But you and I must believe and you and I must continue. You, you want to, don't you? I mean, isn't that one of the reasons you're here? Because you want to continue in your faith? Well, keep on keeping on. And if you act, pract ask practically, well, what, is, what does it look like? I'll just refer back to Kevin's message last week. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, uh, number one, you should eat, okay? You should eat. You should be nourished. In other words, you should read the Word. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
Read your Bible. You want to continue in the faith? Read your Bible. Read it today. Read it every day. It's God talking to you over a course of a lifetime. You'll build up a fount of knowledge that will help you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. The Bible is God speaking to you, giving you words to live by. So eat. Secondly, pray. If the Bible is God talking to you, prayer is you talking to God. You should talk to Him. You have a relationship with Him. If you don't pray, you will become anxious. If you turn back to Philippians 4, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But if you do not pray, you will become anxious. Just evaluate yourself right now. How anxious am I about things going on in my life, in my family, in my job, in my school, in my world? How anxious are you? If you are anxious, you should pray. Pray specifically. Talk to God about those things. Because if you don't, it'll be hard for you to continue. And thirdly, you should be in fellowship. This is no new profound teaching. Come to church. Come to church to worship the Lord, to focus on Him, to hear the Word preached. Come for the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and come to talk with your brothers and sisters, to pray for one another, to encourage one another. If you eat regularly, if you pray regularly, if you fellowship regularly, you'll continue in the faith. If you leave off these things, you'll struggle, and eventually you'll have to get back to them so why leave off in the first place? These are the primary means of grace. There are others, but again, it's nothing profound here. It's no deeper life See, Oh, have you learned the Christian secret of the happy life? No, it's, this is what it is. It's nothing exotic. This is meat and potatoes or fish and rice if you prefer, okay? You do these things, you'll continue in the faith. Do these things and you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us the greatest gift of all in giving us your Son. Jesus, you are the image of the invisible God. You're the firstborn of all creation. Through you, all things were created, and through you, all things are sustained. You are preeminent. You are the reconciler. You are the head of not only of creation, but of redemption. Jesus, you are central, you are supreme, and you are sufficient. We love you, we believe in you, we trust in you, and we ask you to help us continue to love you and believe in you and trust you. We ask this so that we might walk in a manner that brings honor and glory to your name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.